Sabbath, it's Sunday that as your people we gather on a, on a special day that has been set aside to mark us off as your people. Things are not normal today for us because we have pulled aside from the regular routine of life to celebrate the goodness of God, especially your grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we do ask this morning that you begin even now to minister to your people. Speak to our hearts through the preaching of your word. Guard the one who preaches today. I pray that truth would be evident today, and I pray that truth would penetrate into the hearts of fathers, as men in this room who are leading their families. Show us, Father, the things that we should do. Lord, I pray that there would be confession of sin and a, a recommitment to fatherhood today. We thank you for the way you have protected so many in our family, especially those among us who have been traveling, ministering in foreign lands. We thank you for the good reports from Guatemala City. We pray that as that group returns to us today, that you will bring them back safely. Father, we look forward to the days of uh, testimony of your, of your goodness and grace there. We pray, Father, for those among us who are sick. I especially remember Mike Simmons, who is so ill in the hospital. I pray your healing hand upon him. Encourage his wife, Marcia, even today. We thank you for the willingness of your people to give sacrificially. We see evidence of it right outside the door as a building continues to, to be built. Thank you for um, your people and their willingness to give. Bless the giver today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Texas Psalm 127. Let me just introduce you to this psalm quickly this morning before we begin reading the text. You could actually divide Psalm 127 into two different parts. Verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 127 deals with context. The context being the temple. We could say, as the worship of Israel goes, so goes the nation. And then the last three verses, 3 through 5, the psalmist brings things into sharper focus for us. He deals with the issue of the family. So we could say with the, in the last part of this psalm, as the worship of the family goes, or as the family goes, so goes the nation. As the family goes, so goes the church of Grace Evan. Let's read Psalm 127, all five verses. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for He grants sleep to those He loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from Him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies at the gate. Okay, psalm 127 is a psalm of Solomon. You might notice that at the heading of your Bible this morning. Uh, it's written by Solomon or possibly for Solomon during the glory days of the temple. Recall that Solomon was commissioned by his father David to build the temple which was to become the centerpiece of Hebrew worship. No detail was to be left out, no expense spared, for this would be the place where God would reside among his people. It was by God's design that the worship of Israel would become a testimony to the pagan nations of the glorious grace of God. 
Now, years later, Hezekiah rediscovers this piece of sacred literature. It's as if he picks it up off some shelf stuck in the background. He blows the dust off of it, and he reads these words once again. And Hezekiah is reading Psalm 127 during a period of Israel's history when both the temple and the family stood in desperate need of repair. Now, if you remember your Old Testament history, Hezekiah had come to the throne after his father Ahaz. You remember the rule of Ahaz? Ahaz was a pagan ruler, a pagan king. The temple had become desecrated with idols, and Hebrew houses were filled with or polluted with sin and unruliness. 2 Kings 18 tells us that when Hezekiah came to the throne, he goes into the temple and he tears down the Asherah poles, the pagan altars, and he breaks in pieces the bronze snake that Judah had begun to worship. Hezekiah literally cleans house. It's during those days when the family and the temple were in shambles that Hezekiah reads these words once again and he's instrumental in having Psalm 127 placed in the Hebrew hymn book. Hezekiah, or Psalm 127, begins with the foundational principle of Hebrew life. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Psalm 127 has been called by some the builder's psalm. And it's, uh, it's reminiscent of the early days of the construction of the temple. And it teaches us two things. Number one, that the real, or that the, um, that every house is built by some man. Secondly, it teaches us that the real strength to Judas, the real secret to Judas' strength wasn't behind the temple itself. It wasn't behind this grand place of worship. The real secret to Judas' strength wasn't behind the land that was flowing with milk and honey. As important as the land was, as closely tied as the land was to the covenant, that wasn't the secret to Judas' strength. Neither was the secret to Judah's strength the houses built with brick and mortar. The secret to Judah's strength hinged upon the, uh, the abiding presence of God. Israel prospered as long as God remained in their midst when fathers and mothers and sons and daughters dedicated themselves to the worship of God. Now, I want you to see if you can picture with me in your mind's eye. Picture this scene. Picture Hezekiah walking through the gutted temple in the cool of the evening. Hezekiah lamenting over the sins of his fathers, longing for the day when the name of Yahweh would be mentioned and praised again in the families of Judah. And you can almost hear the words of Deuteronomy 6 as they echo through the colonnades of Solomon's porch. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he gives you this land that's large and with flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And Hezekiah remembers the words of Psalm 127, the second part of this first verse. Unless the Lord keeps or watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. And the psalmist here is really restating the same principle, just using a different metaphor. And the picture here is one of the, the enemy is at the gate and the city is threatened. 
Danger demands that we double the guard. Danger demands sometimes that we double our efforts. I think the inference here is twofold. One, that the Lord may not always be pleased to watch over the city. And secondly, we're not safe because of the watchman. We are safe, ladies and gentlemen, because of Jehovah God. Now, there are many applications we can make with this verse. It's almost unlimited. But let's, let's limit it to the family since it's Father's Day. By the way, this psalm is still used today among Jews, Orthodox Jews, on the days they celebrate the birth of children, the days they celebrate family. Psalm 127 is often recited. So it's a good day to make application to the family. Now, gang, it's hard work building a family, isn't it? Are there any experts, expert fathers here today? See your hands. Least of all the one preaching. Building a family is hard work. I've told some of you that I learned to pray. Carl and I really learned how to pray when our kids got in high school. Prayed constantly for our kids. We'd go up to our bedroom, the two of us, pray for Holly and Brian. Building a family is hard work. The indication in this text, this first verse, is again, there is a divine mandate. The Lord certainly builds, is the builder. The, the Lord certainly is the watchman, watches over the city. But the divine mandate includes that some man must build the family. Somebody has to build the house. So we prayed. I prayed about everything I could think of for my kids. I prayed just like many of you pray for your kids. Lord, I pray that they'll have good friends at school. I pray that they'll be accepted by their peers at school. Lord, I, I help Holly make the basketball team. It sure would encourage Holly if she made the basketball team. Help Brian make the football team. He sure wants to play football. I pray for uh, sexual purity. Keep my kids sexually pure. Keep them from temptation. I pray about the drug thing. You know, there are a lot of drugs out there. Keep Holly and Brian from drugs and on and go. Brian got his driver's license and couldn't get that boy to wear a seatbelt. He'd put it on when I was around, but I knew that boy wasn't wearing that seatbelt. I'd pray, Lord, protect Brian while he drives. Pray for all, just constantly praying for my kids. I wish I had $100 every time I slipped in their room at night while they were asleep. Prayed for Holly and Brian. Building a family is hard work. We prayed over and over again this, these same prayers. I mean, I finally ran out of things to pray. But I was so used to praying, I kept praying. During those seasons of long prayers that the Holy Spirit began to teach me how to pray for my family. And my prayers began years ago to take on a new meaning. A new prayer began to formulate in my heart. Lord, whatever it takes, I want my kids to be lovers of God. Lord, whatever it takes, conform my kids into the image of Christ. Lord, whatever it takes, I want them to love you with all their heart, soul, and strength, whatever it takes. You know, as I began to pray those prayers, those new kinds of prayers, I began to worry less about seatbelts. The Lord began to consume us with, our kids need to be lovers of God. I began to rest in the fact that the Lord is the builder of the city, and the Lord watches over the gate. Now, the part two of this psalm, look in, in verses 3 through 5. I want to talk about some things here. This is the good news of this psalm. If, if verses 2 
or verses 1 and 2 deal with the inception and demands of the building project. Verses 3 through 5 deal with the impact and blessing of the family. And here the psalmist puts things into perspective for us. The psalmist reminds us, number one, that sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from Him. Now, does anything bother you about that text? Sons are a heritage, children a reward. He didn't say sons and daughters are a heritage. And I, I, I studied the text. It's, this is the Hebrew word. It's masculine. Sons are a heritage. Now, our first impression here with this verse, it, it's obvious, especially in the ancient world, the Hebrew world, that we needed sons. The Hebrew father needed a son to carry on the family name. But as I dug a little deeper, I discovered the meaning is much richer than that. It goes further than a father who needs a family name to be carried on or a father who needs a son to take over the family farm. It's much richer than that. Because in the Hebrew culture, it was the father who stood as the teacher of Yahweh. It was the father who understood and received the divine mandate that the father was to lead the home. The father was to be the teachers of the way of God. If the coming generations were to remember that God was the liberator God who set Israel free, it would be the sons who would rise up and continue the father's heritage. God is a gracious God. It was the divine mandate of the priesthood of the father. So what we discover here, gang, is that in verse 3, there is an issue of responsible stewardship involved. I want to show you something in Exodus 20. Turn to, uh, you look at this text, Exodus 20. Exodus 20, chapter 4. This is commandment number 2. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the first two commandments deal with the issue of worship. Commandment number 1 teaches us who we are to worship. Because God is... There is no other. Commandment number two deals with the way in which we're to worship. And what we learn from commandment number two is that Israel, it was possible for Israel to worship the one true God in a false way. And here's God's, as He reveals to His people, commandment number two, verse four. You shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, here's where we run into trouble with this commandment. This is a difficult passage that fathers ask me about this. I've even wondered about my, uh, myself. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You will not understand that passage unless you think in terms of the covenant. And one of the greatest motivations we ought to have as fathers for true worship is the future well-being of our children. God is speaking here in covenant language. If Israel would choose to live in idolatry... Now listen, idolatry is not just on pagan altars. The argument here is it's possible for God's people to worship the true God in the wrong way. There are modern-day idols in the church today. And some of the idols that fathers struggle with is the idol of self-centeredness. There are fathers who continue in sexual sin, private sexual sins. 
Their argument is, my children are too young. They'll never know. But God says, idolatry repulses him. And he said, there will come a day when fathers will be greatly vexed in their old age when they see their grandchildren fall by the sword and become enslaved again. See, gang, when we choose the way of idolatry, God will write a bill of divorce. You see, idolatry is spiritual adultery. And our children will be cast out of covenant community as well. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children a reward. There is an issue of responsible stewardship. Verse, uh, or secondly, verse uh, number 4. The psalmist said, Children are our helpers. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. The ancient readers like Hezekiah would really appreciate this verse. They understood the rich metaphor. And the metaphor is a man going into battle and he knows how important it is to have weapons that can fly where he cannot. It's teaching us, the metaphor is teaching us, that the godly child is the father's arrow speeding to hit the mark of the target that the father cannot hit. In one sense, it's a picture of a father of old age who sends out his sons and daughters to continue the battle. But notice here, what's unique about an arrow, the weapons of war? The arrow must be fashioned. The father must fashion the arrow, and he must fashion it by example. You know the prayer that I've been praying now for now many years? Lord, whatever it takes. What I've discovered in that prayer is it usually involves some change that I need to make in my life as a father. It usually involves some discipline that I need in my life. Often it's involved a forsaking of sin, setting new priorities of crucifying self. Fathers, this means that we must be willing to learn the art of fashioning arrows. It means that we must be teachable before we can teach it means that before we can discipline, we must be disciplined men. Last fall, Carl and I bought three pine trees to plant in the back of our yard. To, we were trying to form a natural break there. and So we went out and bought three pine trees. I think they're about three gallon size, four or five feet tall. And we planted them in October. Got those things planted in the ground and stepped back and looked at my work, but I realized that the work wasn't done. It was really just starting. I, my father had taught me some things about planting trees, and I knew that young trees needed to be staked, especially with the season change, the coming storms and the winds, especially young pine trees. They're so susceptible to damage. Small, tender trunks. Pine is a soft wood, so susceptible to the damage by wind. And so I took the time to stake those trees. Carla stood back at a distance and she would give me directions. It's, you know, straighten it this way, pull it a little more this way. So we got all three trees straight, almost. There's one that we noticed yesterday was leaning a bit. But um, we got those trees staked, ready for the change of seasons. Anchored them in the ground so they could get some stability so the roots could stay stable and grow. You know, I've learned something about those trees. About every two months or so, I have to go out and make some adjustments. The stakes have worked loose in the ground. Trees are getting loose. I tighten things up, secure them. 
There's a proverb that goes like this. As the twig is bent, so grows the tree. You, you get the metaphor, don't you? The task and calling of a father to invest his life in the young, the young child. Because as the twig is bent, so grows the tree. David Elkine wrote a book several years ago entitled All Grown Up and No Place to Go. In his book, Elkind addresses the issue of the staggering number of teenagers who lack, he says, adult guidance to make the transition from adolescence to adulthood. I'm quoting now. Elkind says, We are losing too many teenagers today. We are producing too many young people who may never be productive and responsible citizens, much less lead happy and rewarding lives. Heart of the issue, Elkind says, is the breakdown of parental security and stability. Parents who have become absorbed in their own voyage, and we saw that beautifully portrayed in the drama this morning. Parents who become so absorbed in their own voyage that they become ambivalent. They become self-seeking, looking, seeking for personal discovery. As a result, they give minimal energy to their teenager's struggle. Caught between two value systems, parents become ambivalent, and teenagers perceive, listen, their ambivalence as license. Because we are reluctant to take a stand firm, we deny teenagers the benefit of our parental concern, and we impel them into premature adulthood. We say, honestly, I don't know, and teenagers hear, he doesn't care. And I think one of the most discouraging issues our teenagers, Christian teenagers, face today in the Christian church is covenant, or covenant parents who have become ambivalent, lead undisciplined lives. And our kids long to be able to turn to a father and say, teach me the ways of the Lord. Show me how to live. Finally, in verse 5, the promise is this. And this is an encouraging note. Children, the psalmist says, are our happiness. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Now, fathers, I want to confess to you this morning that uh, the struggle I have with this sermon, and I continue to have it, is I want, to, I want to present a message that will encourage you as fathers. And yet there is sufficient warning in Scripture. There are cautions we need to hear as fathers. There are danger signs all about us. But I want to leave you with an encouraging note this morning. The psalmist says, Blessed, happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with the enemies in the gate. Last year, some sociologists from Rutgers University completed a study on marriage and family. You know what they discovered? They discovered that modern marriage is becoming more about romance and the search for a soulmate than about child rearing and family. And here's one of the ways they prove it. Did you know at the end of the 19th century, 100 years ago, 75% of the households had children under the age of 18 in them? That's at the end of the 19th century. By 1960, it had fallen to 48%. By 1998, the number of households with children under the age of 18, uh, about 39%. Becoming so consumed, you know, with, 
romance and it's finding a soulmate that we've lost the value of what it means to have a family. And I tell you, I'm encouraged at a church like Grace of Anne. I see some of you pulling in the parking lot with your um, mini buses and they're loaded with kids and I say, praise the Lord for that. You, you would be surprised the amount of money we spend around here every year just cleaning carpets. I mean, kids, kids cause lots of damage. <laughs> but I say, let them mess the carpet up. We can repaint the walls. Let's keep having the kids. Happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. Oh, by the way, you can't miss this part of the verse. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Now, in the Hebrew culture, when a person would come to a city to accuse a man, the first place he would have to go would be the city gate. He'd go to the city gate and meet the city fathers or the elders. If he brought an accusation against the fa a father in the city, one of the best testimonies a father could have was if his children, his large family, showed up at the gate and defended their father. He is a righteous, godly man. <laughs> Isn't that a beautiful picture? But yet, having lots of children can you know, mean lots of problems. It's, they're expensive, aren't they? I read a story just a few weeks ago of a, a lady by the name of Edith from Darlington, Maryland. This is a true story. Uh, Edith, uh, mother of eight. Can you imagine having eight kids? Mother of eight was next door early one morning having coffee with a neighbor. Her husband had gone to work. She had left her kids at home to play. And mother's intuition, she sensed something wasn't right at home, so she walked across the lawn, stepped up on the porch, looked inside the screen door, and there in the middle of the family room... Sitting in the floor were five of her youngest gathered around something in the floor. So Edith stepped in the door, slipped up behind her children, looked over in the midst of her five youngest, and there in the floor in the middle of her five little ones were five baby skunks. <laughs> so not knowing what to do, she stepped back in a panic and she screamed, Run, kids, run! And they did. All five picked up a baby skunk and went their direction. <laughs> So having lots of kids can mean having lots of problems. But I close this morning, guys, with a beautiful proverb. You can turn there if you like. It's Proverbs 17, verse 6. Listen to this. A beautiful proverb. Children's children are a crown to the aged, and parents are the pride of their children. <laughs> Let's read it again. Children's children are a crown to the aged. You know what this is a picture of? This proverb is a, is a picture of full honor. You know, we understand the first part. Children's children are the crown of, to the aged. You know, my dad is in his mid-70s, and he is happiest when he's got his... Now he's got a couple of great-grandchildren. If he has his grand, great-granddaughter in his lap and his grandchildren around and his, you know, his sons and daughters around, he's, he just beams. Because children's children are a crown to the aged. But notice the proverb says, and parents are the pride of their children. It's a picture of a man, a full-grown man, who steps back and he sees his father in those golden years. And he sees his father enjoying his children and his children's children. And he says, thank you, Father, for teaching me the ways of the Lord. Thank you, Dad, for making the sacrifice. Children's children are a crown to the aged, and parents are the pride of their children.
Our Father, again, we thank you for your word, truth, that is so powerful. We pray that it would uh, pierce into our hearts, expose, uh, expose sin in our hearts today, Father. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would encourage us today as we continue the great divine mandate of building families. Father, I pray that we would be men and women who are passionate about truth. Father, I pray that we would be men who are so knowledgeable of the ways of the Lord that when our kids approach us, we just naturally tell them the ways of the Lord. I pray, Father, you'll bless the families of Grace of Anne. O oh Lord, fill our houses with children. Bless those who continue to have children. Encourage them today. Lord, we trust you for the provisions for our homes. You have been so good to us. We hardly lack a thing. Finally, Father, I would pray that as our children grow, grow old, that they would be able to look at their parents and realize that their parents are a reward to them. Their parents have become a crown to them because mom and dad have been faithfully committed for years to the task of raising godly kids. Father, I pray that we'd be lovers of God. Lord, this is for your glory. That the pagan community, the lost neighbor, the lost family next door, would see Christian families functioning well. And they would look in our homes and say, there must be a God. May the way we live our lives bring the lost to Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.